Hey, welcome everybody to this Friday panel. I'm so excited for the topics we're discussing today and also the guests that we have, which I'm going to introduce to you in a second. Our topic today from the Creed is, do you remember, can we say the Creed up to this point? I believe in God, the Father Almighty. These two terms, Father Almighty, bring up so many issues, don't they? Um, we've already talked a little bit, actually, in this class about the idea that God is almighty or omnipotent. Is that a philosophical idea that, in fact, is foreign to the Bible? Or is it just natural for people of faith to believe that God really would be almighty? I mean, what is God if not almighty after all? This father thing, though, it's a little different. Is God literally a father? Like, what do you mean when you say someone is, quote, literally a father? Exactly, right? Like, there are certain things you mean by that. And, and does the creed mean that? Do Christians mean that? What would it mean for God to be even in a gender-neutral parental relationship? And then again, do we even have such a thing as a gender-neutral parental relationship? So there's like this whole hornet's nest of problems here with this. I also want to honor the fact, though, that we've been also talking about the law. That's where we are in the Bible right now. We're in the book of Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. And we're talking about those 600-plus laws and rules that um, God has given to Israel. So we're going to cultivate discussion on both of these things, where and if they intersect is the question, and they don't have to. We can just treat them as separate topics here with our august panelists. I'll start here on my right, um, Dr. Melanie Springer-Mock from the English department. Dr. Mock has been um, one of our teachers of the year at the university, one of our researchers of the year. She is the author of If Eve Only Knew, with a really long subtitle that I can't remember now off the top of my head. You probably can't remember. <laughs> If you've only knew it, a book about biblical conceptions of gender. Um, and we're really, really pleased to have uh, Professor Mock here with us today. Um, directly on my left, this is Dr. Laura Hartley. Dr. Hartley is the Dean of the College of Arts and Sciences at George Fox University. Students don't always get to meet deans unless you get in trouble sometimes, okay, maybe. Um, but Dr. Hartley is an academic. She has a PhD from Michigan State University in linguistics and sociolinguistics. And her academic work is very concerned with the way that people talk to each other. In fact, if I'm not mistaken, isn't your dissertation about the way that people use terms of power and different kinds of people can negotiate those kinds of words? And so, you know, this is a good person to have with us talking about uh, this kind of thing when we talk about what kind of words we use for God. And last but not least, on my far left, Dr. Anderson Campbell. Um, he's a professor in the College of Christian Studies along with me, my colleague in my department. Um, Dr. Campbell has been a pastor, so we'll call him our pastoral presence for the week, which I know you all like to have in some ways, and I do too. Um, Dr. Campbell is an editor of at least two books, um, maybe with more on the way, who knows, um, an author and a really talented speaker, and I'm so happy to have him here. He has a doctor of ministry from our very own uh, George Fox University Seminary, Portland Seminary. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Um, as promised, I want to cultivate a little discussion on this question of, of the law. I wonder if I could flip this to, to Dr. Campbell first, actually just for fun, because I know you teach even classes like this on the Bible and law. I mean, what's your reaction as a Christian to the law? When you read it, is it boring? Does it seem like it's unnecessary? What do you make of the law when you, when you come across it? Well, yeah, both. Uh, and I think... <laughs> it's boring and unnecessary and... <laughs> right. Um, and, and I think it's confusing, and I think it's really easy to misplace uh, as a Christian, especially how to read the Torah law, 
right? The, the first 10 of those laws, those 10 commandments, we, we get behind. Right. We say, yeah, those make sense, and those seem somehow timeless in their application even for today, and then the other 600-something. Right. Um, and I think you mentioned this in your lecture on Monday. Those seem to go, like, really wildly off the rails pretty quickly when we're trying to think in sort of a 21st century Western Christian context. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think that, for me, the best way that I've been able to understand the law and sort of its place in the Christian life today is to understand that I think that what the law shows us is the law shows us how to be image bearers. Like that's really the challenge of the law is it differentiates humanity from God and then calls us to be more like God. And so a lot of the things that we read in the law seem like super extreme and especially like with the penalties and the sacrifices and things like that. And the question is not like, do we become somehow little gods by keeping these laws, but do these laws show us how we reflect the image or are incapable of reflecting the image of God without some sort of like external uh, action by Mm. God? Mm. And so kind of viewing that through a lens of Christ, which is what we do as Christians. We read Christ uh, throughout the scripture. We see that Christ came uh, to fulfill that law, right? Not to say, you know what, we don't have to pay attention to that anymore, but to say, listen, this example of what it means to bear, to bear the image of God is fully and perfectly represented in Christ, and that we can then participate in that as we participate in Christ. So we don't get to do like the easy thing on either end of like kicking the law out to the side and saying, ah, in Christ we don't need it anymore, nor do we have to do the legalistic thing of saying, well, because Christ came to fulfill it, we're still beholden to following every single letter Mm -hmm. of the law. Yeah, that makes sense. I wonder if I could open this up to just anybody who wants to jump in here on the panel, or students as well. Um, Jesus, the kind of hero of the Bible, we're getting there, plot spoiler, is asked at one point, um, I, think, I think at least one of these occurrences happens in the book of Matthew, he's asked, of all those laws, of the whole 600 bunch, which one, wh- which one do you think is the best? Which one do you think is the most important? And he says very famously, to love the Lord your God with all your heart and your soul and your mind and to love your neighbor as yourself. Does that sound to you like, like a good summary? I know it's, you wouldn't maybe disagree with Jesus, but like, it seems kind of vague too, love the Lord your God. Like, what's that supposed to mean? Like, I'm trying. I don't know. Are you surprised that Jesus didn't go with something more specific than that? Yes. <laughs> no, I mean, I think it is vague, but I think he's, because he expands on that, right? And he says that all of the law and the prophets rest on these two commandments. Mm. And uh, in that sort of like vertical, horizontal analogy uh, that you used on Monday of, you know, it, are some of these laws point us to God and some of these point us to one another? Do we think of it more as sort of a circular thing? Right. It seems that Jesus was appealing at least to those who had categorized those laws as vertical and horizontal mm-hmm. and said, if you really, if, if that's, if those are the two categories you want to look at, then the laws point you to do at least this, which mm-hmm. is to love God. Mm-hmm. And at least this, which is to love one another. And then he said, everything else kind of falls underneath those two things. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, even pointing that, that section that Jesus is quoting, the first part, love the Lord your God with all your heart, that's from Deuteronomy 6, 4, in fact. It's called the Shema in Judaism. It's like the most central, important confession that Jews even pray today on a daily basis. Shema Yisrael, Adonai Elohenu, Adonai Echad. Uh, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God, and so on. And so Jesus shows himself in this moment to be a very good, central, law-loving Jew of his time, you could say, in, in that way. Um, so I'm, I'm struck by the fact that he mentions that as, as the center of the law. 
Um, we can come back to this law thing, okay? And if students want to ask about it, text about it, grab the mic, we can, we can go more with that. Why don't I transition into this question, I, and I, I want to invite Dr. Hartley maybe to, to take it up. I started my lecture on Monday with, with a famous quote in the history of gender studies that if God is a man, then men are gods. Do you think that that's, do you think that's true? That statement, if God is made into a man, then that makes men into gods? Uh, well, I think part of the challenge in thinking about how we even uh, conceive of or talk about God um, has to do, obviously, as a linguist, I'm sort of constantly thinking about the, um, the ways that our language both um, helps us put our thoughts into words and communicate those, but also that, that language limits us. Um, and uh, so when we're beginning to, when we're talking about God, when we're thinking about God, so God is sort of outside of our experience of being human, um, and yet we have to, the only way for us to, to talk about God is to use um, the, the means available to us, so namely um, human thought and then human language. Um, and, and one of the challenges there is that we don't really have ways of uh, talking about God in a way that can be both personal um, and perhaps uh, non-gendered. Um, so our experience of humans is always sort of uh, shaped by the fact that we're interacting with other people who are male or female. Um, and so, and, and those interactions can be personal, but when we move beyond um, those categories, we're sort of at a loss for words. Yeah, like you get into this bizarre territory where it's like, how do we talk at that point? Yeah, so we can, we can use sort of abstract you know, language to talk about God, but then we lose that personal piece mm -hmm. as well. And so I think that's one of the challenges that in a way that language limits us to think about um, not just who God is, but then how do we, how do we relate to God? How do we right. talk with right. God? Right. Um, so our experience you know, as gendered people um, limits that, and then our language right. further limits that. Right. Professor Mock, what do you make of this, of this statement by Mary Daly? Do you think if God's a man, men become gods? Yeah, <clears throat> excuse me, I, I think that she's right. Um, and for a number of years, I really resisted that notion. I didn't wanna, I, I pushed back against the idea that God, both that God was male and also that using that kind of language is problematic. <coughs> but when we begin, when we consistently use masculine language to talk about God, when we consistently give God, um, um, characteristics that we would see, see as culturally masculine, what we do is suggest that the characteristics that are culturally mas masculine fit God's characteristics more than those that are feminine. So that as we continue to talk about God as father, we are reinforcing the idea of what a father figure looks like, that he's strong and courageous and almighty and all these descriptors forgetting that God's character covers so many others as well, um, other traits as well. Um, and I think that using that God as Father language kind of reifies a power di dynamic where uh, the, the Father is all-powerful and the woman is to submit to that power. Um, I absolutely think that our language 
shapes the way we understand reality, and our language about God shapes the way we understand God. Mm-hmm. Some people have wanted to take this, this language of God as Father and say, look, here's the cue. It's just that we're to see God in parental terms. Like parent is the, um, you know, parent is the way. And yet, I can also, maybe, maybe some of you all as well can think of ways that even the language of parent might be kind of limiting or problematic as well. Um, not all of us have had parents of the same kind, not maybe biological parents in a traditional sense. Um, some of us have been adopted. Um, some of us maybe grew up in, in homes with less than ideal parents or with a single parent or with who knows what kind of you know, arrangements, which might even make the idea of God being a parent not even a helpful image as well. I don't know, does anyone have any thoughts on this idea? Like, is it, is it a better move to just say God's a father or a mother, but just really like a parent? I mean, is that an improvement on calling God a father, let's say, strictly? Well, I mean, I, I go back to the first point I made, which is um, the, the word parent is a nice sort of cover term, um, but we very seldom introduce, you know, like, you know, when we're introducing our parents to our friends or something, hey, this is, you know, Dave, he's my parent, right? <laughs> so, uh, I, although my kids have sort of taken to calling us parents to one another as a, just kind of a... The parents? Yeah, kind of yeah. yeah. Well, they, no, not even the parents, just, hey, did you hear what parents did? Oh, really? Um, yeah, that's anyway. Kind of a, that's kind of yeah. depersonalizing Anyways, the relationship But But there. that's the point, right? So, so yeah, <coughs> so we can talk about parent as a relationship, but we don't use that as a, a actual term of address or term of um, affection. Um, and so, again, I think we're limited. That, that, to me, to say God is just a parent, that again, depersonalizes God, because none of us have experience with just a generic parent. Right. We have experiences with a, with a mother and with a father, or with people who have been like mothers or like fathers right. to us. Um, and so that, that helps us perhaps uh, escape the, the gender trap a little bit, but it doesn't, but it leads us to another trap. So mm-hmm. I don't know that it solves our problem. Yeah. Yeah, and I think that, uh, that Part of what we do when we talk about God as Father or God as any other sort of like image is we fall, we, we easily fall prey to category mistakes, right? And uh, so Karl Barth, who's one of my favorite theologians, kind of famously said one time, uh, talking about these category errors, God is not man said in a loud voice. Meaning that, like, when we conceive of God as having human traits and human attributes, we don't just take whatever our understanding of those attributes are and kind of turn them up to 11 and say, that must be what God looks like. Mm. That's how we get sort of the floating white bushy beard judge in the sky, is by taking our conception of what goodness or justice or power or authority embodied looks like and then trying to put that on some sort of infinite level. Instead, I think that when we can refer to God as Father, we first have to realize that that's a metaphor, that that's patently not actually true. And when metaphor operates in language, it causes this sort of cognitive dissonance, right? We have to say, well, that's not true, but I don't want to believe that the person who's saying that to me is lying to me. So in what ways do they mean that to be true? And so I think the invitation when we're talking about God as Father is to not say, Uh, So whatever my experience with Father has been, I turn that up to 11, and that's now who God is, Mm. because that is, like, horribly traumatizing to people who've had bad fathers. Yeah, I mean, you know, like, my dad wasn't a criminal or anything, but, like, that would be problematic for me to turn my experience of my dad up to 11 and say, that's God. 
Like that would be that would be that would be troubling to me personally. I don't know if anybody yeah. else was. Yeah, and it would be troubling to me uh, for me to do that with my mom. You know, it's like, I love the motherly attributes of God that we see all th- laced all throughout the scripture. Mm. But if I were to just conceive of God as mother, as being the kind of mother that I had, yeah. then there would be nothing there for me that yeah. could, could draw me into that. But if instead I allow God, the image of God as father to redeem my understanding of what a father is and to really set that as an example for what fathers ought to be, like I look at how God interacts with the people that he calls his children or that we call his children. Children, then perhaps I can start to understand what the concept of father means at all. Yeah. Yeah, go for it. So one of the things I have a problem with this language, and uh, the language we use whenever we talk about religious experience, <clears throat> I think is that we, we use language without even consideration of all these things. It's just uh, an easy, easy off to, to pray to God the Father or, or talk about He when we talk about God. Because that's just part of our language. That's just the way we've heard God spoken about since the beginning of our lives. Um, so what I have tried to do, my practice is to only refer to God as God. Um, and to do that sometimes takes mental gymnastics. Because <laughs> you have to avoid the pronoun then. Like right, exactly. If God says about God's self, not himself, or you know whatever like that. Right, exactly. So, But in doing that, I'm calling attention, <clears throat> at least in my head, to God and the wonder of God. And instead of just facilely talking about God as a he or father, I'm asking myself to attend to the gloriousness of God mm-hmm. by saying God's name. Right. We have a question over text here. Um, someone asked, good question. If we, as the universal church, if Christians began to look at God as a woman and the feminine attributes of God character, how would members of the church interact with each other and with the world at large be different? Would there, in other words, would it change, would a greater recognition or even a full recognition of God's female characteristics change the way that people in church actually live their lives or the way that we interact with each other? Or would it, would it make no difference at all? Well, of course, we have lots of images, um, not of God necessarily as mother per se, but um, God with, you know, sort of female described with female attributes or with other kinds of metaphors that tend to be more feminine. Um, And so, yeah, I mean, I think inviting those in uh, would help us expand our view of of who God is and, you know, the the characteristics that God displays to us. Of course, I don't think we should let the pendulum swing to the other uh, and either and say, okay, well, let's just all start calling God she and using only the terms God um, as mother. I think it's actually helpful to recognize that, um, as we, especially since the question was about the kind of the church universal, is that um, the experience of being a Christian is always lived out in a particular culture in a particular language or a set of languages for some people. Mm-hmm. Um, and one of the things that we are sort of saddled with as English speakers is the fact that we do make this, this uh, gender distinction in our third-person pronouns. It's the only place we make a gender distinction um, in English. There are languages in the world that actually don't have that gender distinction. Mm. So there's a third person, so just sort of a single third-person pronoun, uh, which can be translated um, in other languages, as he, she, or it. Right, and we have you, which is just like you all. Could just mm-hmm. be plural. It could be singular. It could be masculine. It could be feminine. Hebrew has 
gendered pronouns. Right, yeah, some languages have to mark masculine or feminine on every single noun. We used to have that in English a long time ago, that has changed, but, but this pronoun piece is a remnant. So mm. part, of, part of what we need to do as English-speaking Christians is to kind of listen to the experience of Christians who are, who are experiencing faith through a different linguistic mm -hmm. uh, filter um, and and learn from them in terms of how does their view of God change when it's not required of them to actually use some pronoun mm -hmm. uh, that is is gendered. I've got a flood of questions here. I know there's more we could say on this, and we can loop back to it. I want to ask this one though, because now this is I think is a challenge that can push us to think further on this. If it's the case. As, as many of our panelists seem to be suggesting, and maybe even as I suggested in the lecture on Monday, that maybe the words we use for God and the images aren't a one-to-one -one fit. They don't fit like that perfect puzzle piece. Our language is inadequate. I even suggested on Monday there are some Christian traditions that even suggest that everything we say about God is wrong. God is powerful. You know, no, God is not powerful. It's negative theology. No matter what we say, it's not big enough for who God actually is. Um, someone asks, I think very reasonably, Okay, but like we use a lot of words for God. God is a king. Um, God is Lord. We call God by God's name. We pray to God. We ask God. And I'll even add to the student's good question. If God's not a father, how can Jesus be God's son, right? Like Jesus is called a son. That's also a gendered language and it's also a familial parental language. So I guess a bigger kind of theological question, is this, is this a problem if our language actually can't address the real God in real ways? Does that make sense? I don't know if you want to take a stab at that Anyone? well yeah i i think that the that it what it continues to call attention to is the limitations of our language and how we're never going to be satisfied with having just one descriptor to refer to all of the attributes of god is that they're all limited in some way so they can all be true in some ways and then they all have great limitations and the sort of via negativa or the apophatic uh theology that you're talking about on monday is really uh, acknowledging the limitations of that language and saying perhaps we can better describe who God is in some ways by describing what God is not. And so instead of saying that God is good, because our concept of good isn't nearly big enough, we can say, well, God is not evil. And so we start to, dis to kind of like outline the shape of God by describing like where we know that God is not, what we know God is not. And so that approach, I think, to theology is helpful. But I think that what the invitation here is for us to understand that like, yes, God is king in some senses, but God is also not king in a lot of other senses. God is Lord in our, some senses of how we understand that word, but not Lord in a lot of other senses of how we understand that word. So I don't, I think that like we can increase the number of descriptions and metaphors, mm -hmm. but I don't think we'll ever be able to distill it down to just these one mm -hmm. or these two. What do you think, Professor Mock? Are we just are we just headed for a linguistic collapse in all God language if we start to, you know, mess with this kind of stuff? Um, I don't know what you mean by mess with. I mean change. You know, the, um, the, the Father is the language of the creed. Um, God is called a He every time in the pronouns. Maybe there's one or two exceptions that people debate. I mean, if we, if we change that one or expand that one, are, are we also giving up other terms that are important to the church as well? I'm, I wouldn't suggest giving up things, but um, expanding our language. Uh, there's so much resistance to even expanding our language to recognizing the other mm. aspects of God's character. Mm -hmm. um, uh, and to the question of Jesus as son, if you think about the central metaphor of our faith, it's it's absolutely a metaphor of the feminine, of being born again, is something that happens through the mother, 
rather than through the Father. So Jesus is calling us to a new life using a religious metaphor that suggests that God has a characteristic of mother that because we are born again through the mother. Mm. Yeah, and I think on this notion of ex expanding trying to, you know, sort of constantly expand, we have to recognize that the sort of the original terminology we have for God that's given to us in scripture and then passed down through tradition um, comes to us in cultural contexts that were sort of patriarchal, where, where the power was held by men exclusively. Um, and so it wouldn't have made sense for, you know, biblical writers, whether Hebrew or Greek, to talk about necessarily, you know, God as queen instead of God as king or, you know, uh, or you know, God is lady or, you know, whatever, um, because those were inherently power-based terms that didn't apply to women in those cultures. Um, and so that, those, those metaphors, the metaphors that we might be able to expand into today, um, just weren't possible, you know, in the cultural context of the time in which these scriptures are being written. But mm -hmm. that, but, but we, but we don't just uh, sort of get to the end of the, of the writing of scripture and say, that's it. That's all we can know about God. We have, you know, we have the rest of human experience. We have church tradition, which right. has changed, which right. has expanded. Right. I thought it might be fun, too, to just even bring in a couple of passages from the Bible. Um, these aren't overwhelmingly numerous ways to refer to God in the Bible, but it might be important for Christians to notice that these are there, and there's just more than one of them. For example, I'm reading from Deuteronomy 32, not part of our reading, but part of the law, certainly. Um, um, Deuteronomy 32, 18. God's talking to Israel, and he says, you know, Israel, you sacrificed to other gods. You disobeyed me. You did all this stuff. What are you doing? Verse 18, you deserted the rock who fathered you. You forgot the God who gave you birth. So yes, you have this fathering language in the first part of that little poetic couplet, but then the second one is, God, it's, it's an image of God as giving birth. I mean, when, you, when we think about gender and biology, do men give birth? Like, who gives birth? Um, it's women. So God is presented as a birthing mother in that passage. And then the other one I wanted to read on that front, um, Isaiah 42, 19, I think. No, not Isaiah 42, 19. Isaiah 42, 14. God, God is speaking in the first person here. This is a book that we haven't gotten to yet. Isaiah 42, 14, God says, For a long time I have kept silent. I have been quiet and held myself back. But now, like a woman in childbirth, I will cry out, I gasp and pant. So this is a, this is a, very, this is a very bracing image of God as a woman. I don't know if any of you have ever seen a birth before. I've watched two births in my life. Uh, maybe others in here have given birth and could maybe identify with that in a more personal way. But to imagine God as a screaming, birthing mother, and actually God referring to God's self in this passage as a screaming, birthing mother, is a really striking image for God, right? Um, so just wanted to point that out, that, that lest, lest one think that it's just like hostile feminist takeover of the Bible. You know, it's like the Bible has these moments too where the imagery of God, in fact, just does swing the other gendered way. I don't know, are there other biblical passages that people know of on that front that could be used or, or, or compared to that kind of imagery for God? Well, there's, you know, certainly images of God as the, the mother hen who gathers her chicks under right. her wings. That's another one. Um, so we, that's another one that comes to mind. The, the mother bear um, protecting her cubs. Yeah. It's also mentioned. In Hosea, there's yeah. a mother bear protecting cubs. It's, in fact, the, the passage that you brought up, Dr. Hartley, that's Jesus saying, how I have wished to gather Jerusalem under my wings like a mother hen. So even Jesus is using 
I guess, like female animal language to talk about himself and his way there in the text. Well, and Jesus also has the parable of the lost coin, um, using the metaphor of the poor woman who's looking for her lost coin and turns over her house trying to find it. That's a very domestic, in many ways, image mm. um, that we don't we seem to gloss over and look at the other passages that talk about God's mm -hmm. uh, laser focus on finding the lost. Right. Yeah. I wonder, there are a couple of questions on text, um, and I, I'm trying to get to all these. Thank you for all these. These are great. Does anybody want to take the mic and ask any of the questions that they asked over text? They're really good. Yeah, go ahead. Go for it. So when I was reading all the uh, uh, assigned readings from Leviticus, there were some things that made me like legit angry mm. as I stuff about slavery, stuff about women, stuff about uh, people with leprosy and other diseases. Mm -hmm. And I also kept in mind that when Jesus came, he healed people of their diseases. And those who are in slavery, they have been freed through Jesus. So you may think, well, Jesus came to take everything from the law and turn it on its, on its head. But he specifically said, I didn't come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it, to make it complete. So in a way, God crea creating the law and everything in the law, including all the random stuff that we can't understand, uh, was created to be fulfilled eventually in this whole grand mm. story. Mm -hmm. So I'm just wondering why certain things like like what I mentioned had to be become part of the law. Yeah. Yeah, that's great. Anyone want to jump in on that easy question to answer? <laughs> I mean, I could start a little bit of an answer. Maybe someone else could pick up the baton. I mean, my first response to that, just like at a gut emotional level, is kind of like yours. Like, I don't know. <laughs> like, I don't know. Um, in some ways, the biblical vision if you notice when you were reading the law, it's not one where God is like, hey, let's sit down round table, think about what might be fair, hash it out. It's, I mean, it's very, it's, it's almighty <laughs> in that sense, in that kind of classic sense of like thundering down from the mountain, here's what you will do. And many of the laws are just not rationalized. Somebody else asked a good question. They were like, look, back in ye olden days, you know, people had different sanitary expectations. Maybe there were a lot of germs. Is it the case that maybe a lot of the laws are just good common sense in terms of hygiene? Maybe not all the leprosy laws, okay, but clean and unclean foods. My personal reaction to that, oh good question asker, is that I don't think that works very well because I think there are better, if God wanted to do hygiene stuff and God is all-knowing, there may be some better hygiene advice God could have given. Like, I don't know, could God have told people to boil water? I mean, I don't know when people figured out that that kills germs. Maybe they knew that back then. Um, but there are some, I don't know, there are some simple tips that God could have given. I mean, and this draws us back to a question we did discuss a couple of weeks ago on the panel. Do you remember Dr. Gupta, who was sitting in this spot here, was talking about the notion of the Bible under an idea of accommodation. Like God speaks to people where they're at, and God always speaks, as Dr. Hartley said, in a context. And so um, he's speaking to them in their context exactly. So for instance, I always think to myself as a joke, why didn't God tell us how to make safe, clean nuclear energy? Thanks, God. Like that would have been a good one, you know? We have a need. Where were you when you were speaking to humans from mountains, right? Um, or speaking of women and men, I mean, why not, just, why not just say, hey, by the way, 
Uh, some of you at one point will have voting and women should be able to vote. Just want to clear that up uh, for all time. Something like that is not there. You brought up even the slavery question, which I think is even one of the most painful ones in the Bible. Why couldn't God have just like cleared up that one point and you know, we had a civil war over that, at least partly over that. Um, and that's a pretty big deal. Could have been cleared up. So what do we make of that idea that Israel was given something in their place and time and it's not our place and time. So I mean, that's, that's just another way of maybe of restating the question or the mystery of that fact. And it's a mystery of particularity, you could say, of a revelation being given to a people in time and space. But this is just the beginning to thinking about this. Yeah, and I, I think that what you're uh, summarizing what Dr. Gupta said is, is right on, is that when the laws were given, those laws were given any particular time in a particular place to deal with things, to give direction on how to deal with things that those people were already facing, right? So God doesn't sit down and say, first, I want you to take slaves, and now here's how you're going to treat them, right? The taking of and owning of slaves was already presumed within that context. And the same thing with leprosy. Like, God doesn't say, I'm going to strike you all with leprosy first, and now here's what you're to do. And so the law, one of the things that the law shows us throughout the Old Testament and into the New is how incomplete the law is at actually dealing with things like slavery and leprosy and all these kinds of things that oppress people and keep them from bearing the image of God. And so when Christ comes to fulfill that law, Christ is doing things like healing to liberate people from that kind of oppression, whether that's natural oppression or demonic oppression or social oppression. And in this sort of like eschatological tension, this tension of knowing how this is all going to end up because Jesus has showed us, but living in a world where that's not fully in effect yet, we have to live in this kind of space where we're still jockeying with seeing what the fulfilled law looks like, but not living under a reality in which that's our experience. And so we have to become then sort of these people that are imaging the fulfilled law and saying, I know this isn't our reality yet, but we have to live in ways that image what that, that future reality is going to be. Mm. A lot of the text questions, if I could summarize a few of them in one kind of thread to throw out another angle on this, some, some people are asking about our contemporary situation of ministry. Um, men have traditionally been ministers in a lot of churches. Maybe you have a church tradition that even bars women from being ministry. Maybe some of you have women as pastors. I, I don't know what all, where all of you come from, but... Does this issue of God's gender have anything to do with the way that we treat women today exactly in church or the way that we treat the question of women in leadership? Well, that's a very big question for like six minutes. Yeah, that's um, right. <laughs> More like four, but you know, do what you can. No, I'm just kidding. Yes. <laughs> uh, um, so I think, think of the image in Genesis of God creating men and women in God's very image. Um, but that, th that text seems to suggest an equal, equal uh, reflection of God. But somehow we have made men seem like closer to the image of God. And I think that matters because that means that women, because we don't, people assume we don't reflect the creator it, it suggests that we're not as sacred, as holy, um, as close to God as men. Uh, and so throughout the Bible, the use of masculinist language, I think, has reinforced the sense that men are, t because they're closer to God, they are to be the on envoys of God, the voice of God, and that, that women aren't t 
because we're not as close to God, because apparently we're not created in God's image, we are, we are to be silent and listen to what men have to say. And of course, there are biblical passages that support some reading of, you know, like Paul, some readings of that suggest that women are to remain silent and that men are to be teachers and preachers. But if we're going to understand the law within its cultural context, then I think we need to understand those passages within their cultural context, too. Um, hmm. I, so absolutely, I think our language, because our language shapes reality, it sh shapes how we understand men and women, it shapes the roles that we think men and women have. Hmm. Yeah, and I'll, and I'll just add, you know, so some people make the argument that, well, women are equally valued, they just have a different role, and their role is to not lead. And, and again, here I would point to um, the fact that our understanding of God and human relations is a is a, something that is progressing over time doesn't mean that we're necessarily getting better and better but but it is expanding it is changing and we happen uh, I think thankfully for for Melanie and I and all the other women in this room to be living in a cultural moment where we have um, the ability to recognize that you know women are sort of equally sort of gifted and created gifted called by God to particular things um, we, the, the ability for us to even think of each individual as an individual is a very uh, interesting cultural phenomenon that doesn't exist, hasn't existed for most of the, the, the history of the world and doesn't exist in many places still today. People don't necessarily think of themselves as individuals, they think of themselves as members of groups. But we have a cultural context that has allowed us to think about the individual and how that individual is um, created and gifted by God. Mm -hmm. And so we actually have something to offer to the rest of the church, the rest of the world. Um, it's not a better perspective, but it is a different perspective um, that says, you know, perhaps our view of women has been incomplete in much of human history, and, and perhaps we need to continue to expand mm -hmm. uh, our thinking about what is possible for women. Mm -hmm. I just, I'll throw out a personal angle on this from my own belief and my own church experience, if it's okay, and if we have time to react to it, all the better. Um, I've typically been reared in churches and attended churches where women were fully empowered to be leaders, and I've had women who were the lead pastor of churches that I've attended very happily for a long time. Um, and that's been important to me as a Christian, and I've known a lot of people who have been part of other traditions, and, you know, and I've said to myself at times, like, would I even want to go to a church that you know, barred women from ministering or leading or speaking at all or, you know, anything that you have, anything that you could say on that front. I will say, though, that sometimes I can look at other people's traditions and I can respect it for different reasons. And I'll just give one example of this, of a tradition that does gender differently than I've done it, that I respect a lot because of the richness of its symbolism, particularly Catholicism. Um, I know some of you are Catholics, maybe 10 or 12 of you out there, and so you know about this better than I do, but in the Catholic Mass or the Catholic Church service moment, um, there's a rich imagery that the priest is actually a symbolic representation of Jesus, who, as far as we can tell, was a man, and that the, the church itself, the congregants, are actually the bride. This language of, of, of marriage as an image of God's relationship to people is a big one in the Bible. And so I think at least one part of the mass, one part of the richness of its imagery, is that the bride comes and meets the groom, and they share in this feast, which is then communion, the taking of the bread and the cup, in which the bride and the groom are united. And so it's an image of heaven. It's an image of ultimate union with God. And of course, Catholics too, as you know, if you're a Catholic, have this rich imagery and traditions around Jesus's mom, Mary, right? And so if you go into most Catholic churches, right away, it's like, 
boom, there's like an image of Mary and you're seeing women and there's this rich imagery. Whether most Catholics understand the imagery that way or whether they see it as just more gender oppression, oh, only men can be priests, I don't know. I'm not a Catholic and so I can't speak to that. I can say that I've looked at that tradition even though it does gender differently from the way that I do and what I do in my churches and in the way that my wife and I have arranged our lives. And I'm like, oh, I see what they're trying to do there. There's an equality that maybe is a kind of difference, but it's modeling an entirely different metaphor altogether. I don't know. That's just one thought there. Dr. Campbell, do you have any reaction to that? One minute. Uh, one minute. Um, I think I would love to talk more about the, the passages that Paul has uh, written that tends to uh, try to, that, that are interpreted in such a way that we would say that women do not have the same kind of calling or uh, should not speak up or teach in church. Because again, uh, context and genre are huge for understanding those. And that's something that I know that you'll get to uh, later when you're talking about uh, Paul's epistles. But I think that the collective witness of the New Testament is that women are called and are gifted in the same ways that men are. And we have had to do some uh, real interpretive gymnastics uh, to try to deny that over uh, centuries. And I think that we are living in a time where we are seeing sort of this uh, return to what this, this calling is to both men and women when it comes to leadership in the church. And the beautiful thing about that is that men get to benefit from that as well, is that men have been hobbled in their understanding of what true godly leadership looks like by denying half of the church the ability to act and live into their calling. Wow, like any good conversation, I feel like now I just want to start it all over again with like another level of things, but we've come to the end of our time. Would you join me in thanking our panelists for today?